dear fellow redeemed. We consider especially our reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And then I suppose it would be a strange way to start by starting with God's words to Abram 2,000 years earlier, 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, 2,000 years before Zechariah is standing there in the temple. Abram, who is 75 years old at the time, and his wife is 65, just got her first social security check in the mail, and God says to Abram a series of seven promises, seven statements, all bound up in one, that he and his wife Sarah would have a son. And the last of those seven statements that in him, in that descendant, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the Gospel of Luke is part of the fulfillment of that. The Gospel of Luke is what we are looking at. The Gospel of Luke, written by a man we know, well, named Luke. The book has his name on it. But he wasn't one of the twelve disciples, not one of the twelve apostles, not like Matthew, the one also known as Levi, the tax collector, who recorded the account of his own conversion when Jesus said, come follow me. And then Matthew followed up with what is commonly now referred to as a Matthew party, where he invited Jesus and all of his Christian friends, and as many of his non-Christian friends that he could find, so that there would be opportunity for the Christians to meet and have a casual conversation with the non-Christians. Matthew. And we know about Mark, commonly known as John Mark, probably, possibly related to Barnabas. Mark, who was probably, possibly a traveling companion of Peter. Mark, who probably, almost certainly, got his account of Mark from Peter himself. And so when you read through the Gospel of Mark, you see Peter is, is there figuring prominently. You see the words of Peter, the actions of Peter, the thoughts of Peter, his actions as he said, I don't know the man. John Mark, the one who maybe even wrote himself in as that young man who fled the Garden of Gethsemane, and whose house, quite possibly, was the house that had a large upper room furnished and ready. And then we have Luke. We have Luke, who was not an apostle. He wasn't even a Jewish man. He was not descended from Abraham. He was a Greek. We have Luke, who was a believer from rather early on, the way he writes it. I followed everything closely from the beginning. And he did some investigating. We have Luke, who was a doctor. And he was well-written, well-read. And he even uses technical uh, medical terms to talk about some of the healings that Jesus healed, as well as a little bit of the professional courtesy, I suppose, where he glosses over the fact that the woman with the issue of bleeding um, suffered much at the hands of many doctors. Luke, who was, at least for a time, a tra traveling companion of Paul um, up near Thessalonica and Philippi. Luke, who wrote the first church history, in two volumes, the Gospel of Luke, the account of the ministry of Jesus, and the book that we know as the Acts of the Apostles. 
And when Luke puts pen to parchment, he does so having investigated these things thoroughly. The idea of writing history is still you know, rather new at this time, but thankfully for Luke, there were a number of people still around who had walked and talked with Jesus personally and individually. And it would be, um, I would say probable, almost definitely, that Luke interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so when he notes in Luke chapter 2 that she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart, whether she said it exactly like that or, or just said, you know, after the shepherds left and it was just a whirlwind of a week and we had a baby, but I had to sit and think about that a lot. I thought back to the angels in the sky and the shepherds coming by. And here's Luke. Part of the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, that seventh promise, that in Abraham's descendant all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And so Luke writes. He dedicates his book to excellent Theophilus, which, you know, possibly his patron, the guy who is funding this project. But just as equally likely, a term that, you know, means a lover of God, one who loves God, a term that you ought to take for yourself. That Luke writes this book for you, dear believer. That Luke writes this book for you so that, he says, um, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you are taught. And that's why he wrote it. He wrote it because he, as one who is not part of the promised chosen nation of Israel, he, he emphasizes again and again that Jesus came for all people. He includes all of these extra writings and extra materials and miracles of Jesus healing people outside of the boundaries of Israel so that you can know with certainty that this Jesus is for you. And he does a funny thing when he writes this, when he writes this book. Like if you read through the Gospel of Mark, the fun thing to do is just underline every time Mark says immediately. It just zips along like an action novel. But if you look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke does something that um, you kind of catch it, I suppose, when we, when we read it in chapter 1. You kind of catch it that verses 1 through 4 um, in Greek are like all one big sentence. And this is, this is Luke showing off that he's got the chops, that he has the ability to write very well, that he's educated, that he knows what he's talking about. He has the ability to write excellent Greek. He writes Shakespeare. It's like Shakespeare writing Shakespeare, pretty much in those first sentences, and we translate it, we put it all, you know, we chop that sentence up into, into two sentences, but even in translation, verses 1 through 4 is like, oh wow, this is, this is quite involved. Many have undertaken to compile an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, an account like those handed down to us by those who are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word from the beginning. For this reason, it seemed good to me also, since I followed everything closely, etc., there's a technical Greek term for that called a period, like the dot at the end of a sentence. It means it's all bound up entirely. It's beautiful. And then he switches. He says in verses 1 through 4, you know what, dear Christian, I want you to be certain that I haven't been bamboozled, that even if, 
even if Christians are neglected as people who are unschooled and backward, and what kind of a fool would believe in a crucified God, even if that were the case, let me assure you that I talked with them. Let me assure you that I am one of you, he says, that he is educated, and that he can write Greek with the best of them. Verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, he flips. Changes to see, spot, run, Greek. Changes to um, newspaper article Greek that is written for like a fourth grade or maybe a third grade level. Straightforward. So that you can know with certainty and that there is no wondering, no doubt about the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, or the how. At the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And we see here the beginning of God fulfilling, or at least you know, the last stage of fulfilling his promise to Abram. That through Abram's descendant, every person on earth, all nations of the world would be blessed. And there is Zechariah at the temple. There is Zechariah, he and his wife, also childless like their predecessor, Abram and probably of similar age, where Zechariah is doing this because he doesn't have a whole lot else to do and everybody needs a hobby, and what's retirement if, if you're Zechariah and Elizabeth? And so he is chosen by Lot. God chooses him to be the guy to go into the temple, and the most amazing thing happens. You've got to picture this, right? Here is Gabriel. He is there, like, lighting up the incense, and it is rising up along with all the prayers of the people, and they can see that from outside the temple, and then all of a sudden, there stands Gabriel, and we've got, um, we've got, like, seven verses. Okay, five verses. An angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome by fear. He was shocked. And Gabriel is like, you know what? Don't be afraid. God's heard your prayer. Fantastic, right? Don't be afraid. You and your wife are going to have a son. That's awesome. You're going to name him John. He's going to be a Nazarite for life, kind of like Samson, kind of like Samuel. Um, he is not going to drink any alcohol for all of his life and avoid grapes and other fermented foods. He's going to be a Nazarite, and he's going to be the forerunner, Elijah, the one going before the Messiah. Zechariah, isn't this awesome? Gabriel has been waiting for God to simply say the word. Gabriel had been waiting to see God's plan of salvation unfolding until God finally said, you know what, uh, Gabriel, you're on, you're on deck. Go tell Zechariah, here goes. Right. And Zechariah and his response, yeah, right. I don't know about you, I, to my knowledge, I've never spoken with an angel. I don't know about you, but you know, when I, I walk out and I get a drink at our water fountain, our drinking fountain, or what is colloquially called a bubbler, get a drink at the drinking fountain um, during that hymn right before I preach, I've never encountered an angel. But I'm fairly certain that if I walked out there and then all of a sudden an angel in gleaming and, and wings and eyes and everything like the way Ezekiel describes angels um, or the way Isaiah describes angels, if I saw an angel out there, I don't think my response would be, 
okay, he just came from the throne room of God, but uh, I'm not having it. I'm not believing it. Yeah, right. And you see that. And it looks like the most ridiculous thing. Zechariah, here is like the moment that is going to be recorded for all of history. Here is the moment that will be written down in words that will remain through eternity. And Luke records for us that Zechariah says, how can I be sure? Because I know how this works and this, let me tell you, is not how it works. Not that God needed to explain it, but God wanted Zechariah to believe what he heard. God wasn't proposing an argument to try to reason him and explain all the biology and the what and the how. But God was fulfilling a promise. That God was, would be preparing his people through yet another miraculous birth. Not just the miraculous birth of Isaac 25 years after Genesis 12. Not just the miraculous birth of Isaac to a woman who was 90 and her husband who was 100 but followed up by the miraculous birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are well past having a baby time, culminating in one more miraculous birth of the Word made flesh. I don't know about you, but I mean, my answer, I hope, wouldn't be, I just saw an angel, but I'm going to respond with, yeah, right. But at the same time, I'm glad that Luke records that for us. Because the very objection that Zechariah gives voice to is the same objection that lingers in the background of all of human rationality, human reason corrupted by sin that wants to know all the details, and God simply says, let there be. God simply says, this will happen. God simply says to Zechariah, to Abraham, to Mary, going to have a child. And human reason still responds with, yeah, right. But thank God that, that God recorded for us these words, this conversation between Zechariah and Gabriel. Thank God that, that Luke demonstrates that the Messiah isn't just for Greeks like Luke, but for doubters like Zechariah. For people who have questions that they want answered now, and yeah, God gives him a little bit of a discipline, and even though he can't talk, he has to finish out his term of duty for five more months. And think about it. But thank God that this Savior is for you and for me. For people who struggle, who have questions, and don't always necessarily bring those questions to the Lord the way that Zechariah did, but we have a Lord who came to us exactly as he said he would. And so he sends Gabriel to prepare his people. He sends John the Baptist to prepare his people. He sends Luke to write for you, most excellent Theophilus, believer. He sends Luke so that you see that this is a Jesus for you. That this Jesus isn't just those who came, isn't just for those who kept the law according to the law of Abraham, 
but also for those who are fallen or frail people, for those who have wonders and worries, that this Jesus came for those who sometimes express those doubts in a somewhat more um, bristly way as Zechariah did. How can this be? I don't get it, and I know how this is supposed to work. But that this Jesus is for you. That he has prepared a people so that you can know he has prepared you as a people so that you can have the certainty that he came for you too. Because that's the overall theme that we'll see as we work our way through the book of Luke over the next few uh, weeks. We'll have a reading plan on the way out of church tonight. As you work through the book of Luke, if, um, if the Gospel of Mark is basically the, the patron saint of immediately, like he says, immediately everywhere, then Luke, Luke is the patron saint of Jesus is for you. I don't care who you are, he says. I don't care what your background is, what you've done, or what you've left undone. I don't care who your father was. I don't care the doubts that you bring to the table today because your Lord has come to answer them. And not necessarily to answer them on your time frame and to answer them according to your satisfaction, but to answer them even better than that with a miracle of the Word made flesh, with a miracle of a promise that God made to a man who was 75 years old and childless 4,000 years ago, to the, the fulfillment of another promise that God made to a man and his wife who were likewise childless 2,000 years ago. And also for you, believer, excellent, Theophilus, that, that this Jesus is for you too. That he has prepared you for his coming, and he says, sometimes, even if it doesn't make sense, it's got to sit back and watch as you see the miracle unfold. Amen.